Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 180, Apologists on How God Can Die, Part 3. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to interact some more with some apologists who think that they can answer this question of how God can die. And this all started with my podcast 145, a presentation entitled, Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies. And in that, I considered an inconsistent triad, which is, Jesus died, Jesus was fully divine, and no fully divine being has ever died. And my basic argument is that a scriptural Christian has to accept the first and the third, that Jesus died, and that no fully divine being has ever died. Basically, they're both clearly taught in the scriptures. The first is explicit everywhere in the New Testament. The third is implicit, but clear enough. And so, those are inconsistent with the claim that Jesus was fully divine, that is, divine in the same exact way that the one God is divine. And so, that's what a Christian should deny. In episode 178, I examined some pretty superficial answers by some well-known evangelical apologists. In episode 179, I consider a Roman Catholic answer that didn't really do much better. And I considered two Protestant answers that I think were a little better in that they weren't just making stuff up. They were trying to bring in things from small-c Catholic tradition to try to solve this problem. In this episode, I'm going to interact with one of those guys again and some other people, and I've been privileged to have some positive and respectful dialogue with podcast listeners online, too, so I'll talk about some of that. First, I wanted to tell you about a couple of interesting podcasts I've listened to lately, and just to let you know about them, uh, one is a new podcast that has just begun called the Areopagus Podcast, and this seems very promising. It's an Orthodox priest and a mainline Christian minister engaging in interreligious and intertheological dialogue, and they promise to do it in a non-polemical spirit. There are a couple of interesting guys. They have mixed backgrounds, partly mainstream evangelical and partly other things. The Eastern Orthodox guy is an adult convert to it. And so I'm looking forward to hearing more from these guys, and I'm kind of hoping that the promise of being non-polemical applies not only to Calvinists and various sorts of Protestants and Roman Catholics, but even to people who don't go by some of the ecumenical creeds like me. Another podcast I listen to regularly that's been on for some time is the Restitutio podcast hosted by Pastor Sean Finnegan. This is a really great podcast. He's got different kinds of episodes. Sometimes it's interesting panel discussions. Sometimes it's interviews. Sometimes it's Pastor Finnegan's teachings on church history and theology and the Bible. I heard a really great episode that was done April 2nd. It's called Interview 16, Church of God Vision. It's an interview with a man named Seth Ross, who has for many years been a pastor in the Church of God denomination. And the occasion for this interview is Pastor Ross's elevation to the top position in the denomination. So he shares his vision for it. It's really worth hearing. 
If you know what that is, and you want to see the direction the denomination is going, you should definitely check this out. This is the denomination that is the uh, sponsor of the Atlanta Bible College. It's a biblical Unitarian denomination, basically. Uh, definitely check out this podcast. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting him one time. He's obviously a very uh, devoted Christian brother and somebody, I think, who has a good vision for the kingdom of God. So if you're at all interested in the Church of God General Conference denomination, definitely check that out. I'll have links to both of these podcasts on the blog post for this episode. First thing I'll do is follow up on someone I discussed in the previous episode. This is Reformed blogger Steve Hayes. He gave a long-winded response in a long blog post to my original presentation, and I very carefully parsed through it and found that he didn't really have an answer. So to have an answer, you either need to say which of the three you deny and why, or you need to show how they're actually consistent after all, that when rightly understood, you can consistently accept all three, or you could try to defend just accepting the apparent inconsistency. Some people I call positive mysterians would take that approach. And he didn't really do any of those things. Maybe he kind of was implicitly suggesting you should just accept all three, but then he's kind of hoping that the two natures doctrine shows how they're really consistent. But he was unable to show that. So what he does when he runs out of answers is he just abuses and slanders. And so I'll skip over that. Um, but he has a post on April 18th called When God the Mighty Maker Died. First, he raises burden of proof, but uh, burden of proof isn't an issue here. Right? It's not like a criminal trial where the prosecution has to adopt the uh, burden of proof. He then launches into a mini lecture about the different ways that the word death is used. And uh, there's not a lot to disagree with here. The most relevant part is when he says, when the Bible says Jesus died, or when the Bible says anyone dies, it's usually operating with a popular pre-scientific definition. Yes, that's exactly right. And so that's the definition I gave in the original presentation and defended. The definition is that to die is to lose all or most of one's normal and natural life functions. He tries to suggest that the ordinary idea is merely phenomenological. So it's just that the person is observed to not breathe, and then uh, eventually the body is observed to decay. Well, I don't think it's merely phenomenological. We think that the living thing has in itself lost something, that is, most or all of its natural life functions. So the person was able to walk before, can't do that anymore. They were able to think with their brain before, apparently they can't do anymore because the brain is just wasted away, etc. Anyway, he kind of filibusters here and lectures, uh, talks about the Bible using the word death metaphorically for spiritual death. Sure. Damnation as second death. Sure. I guess his point is he says, all the responder needs is a definition that escapes logical inconsistency. The onus is not on them to show that it's true. Well, no, they need more than that. I mean, if they're going to stay faithful to the Bible and the Bible says that Jesus died, they need to stick with the concept of death that the Bible's using, right? They can't redefine it in some other way and then make the three come out consistent, at least not if they're trying to defend biblical Christianity. Let's see, he says, I equivocate over what dies. Oh, no, I don't. I have been clear all along that what died was the man, Jesus. Now, I'm a dualist. 
and I think that the person is strictly identical with the soul. That's not what all dualists think. Of course, some Christians are not dualists at all. But anyway, there's no equivocation there, at least not on my part. He says, when a Christian substance dualist uses the convention of identity language to say someone died, they don't mean to imply there's nothing more to the person than their body. They don't think the individual or person is constituted by their body alone. To the contrary, they think there's something essential to the person over and above their body that survives. Well, of course, not at issue. He says, Tuggy's inconsistent triad fails to make allowance for the elementary distinction that the same claim can both be true and false in reference to the same person, but in different respects. I think he's trying to suggest here that the three are consistent after all. So he says, the same individual can both be a son and not be a son. Well, no, that's not right. The same individual can be a son relative to one person and not a son relative to another person. But you either are a son or you aren't, right? If you're a son to somebody, you're a son. And then he says, it's easy to formulate specious inconsistent triads by using simplistic phrases that omit key qualifications or essential background information. So we're just back to, well, obviously these are really consistent. This guy's dumb. Okay, well, they don't look like they're consistent. You need to spell out, Steve, where the equivocation is exactly and give us the disambiguated version of the three to have that kind of solution. Tuggy asks how I think the New Testament generally uses the word God. Short answer, I think the extension of God is indefinite in reference to the Trinity or any particular person of the Godhead, unless the context uses God with a more specific extension to distinguish one divine referent from another divine referent. Okay, wow. So the New Testament authors don't successfully refer either to the triune God or to any of the three in many cases then. That's really a bizarre position. It's not what serious textual scholars will tell you. He says, Tuggy seems to think that God has a default referent synonymous with the Father unless the context makes it clear that it has a different referent. But that's circular. No, it's, there's nothing circular there. It's not an argument. It's just an observation about New Testament usage. Now, the reason he's bringing this up is because how you take the term God affects how you interpret these passages in 1 Timothy, which I discussed in the first two podcasts in this series, so I won't go through that again. This has been observed by scholars of many theological stripes. If you want to hear it from an evangelical, here it is from Murray Harris's book, Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos in reference to Jesus. He summarizes some argument given on this topic by the Roman Catholic theologian Karl Rahner, and then Harris says this, It will be obvious that Rahner has squarely faced the basic issue. To whom are the New Testament writers referring when they speak of Hotheos, the God, or capital G, God, and stripped of its philosophical, some would say casuistical, casing, his answer may stand. Customarily, Theos or hotheos, denotes the Father, but exceptionally, it refers to the Son. That is, that theos and hotheos generally refers specifically to the Trinitarian Father is clearly seen in each strand of the New Testament, but particularly in the testimony of John and Paul. His reference to casuistical, he's referring to sort of 
dodgy, speculative, tricky distinctions that sometimes are made in this regard. He then goes through different uh, segments of the New Testament and analyzes their use of God terms. He says, We have seen that throughout the New Testament, hatheos is so often associated with and yet differentiated from kurios Jesus Christos, Lord Jesus Christ, that the reader is forced to assume there must be both a hypostatic distinction and an interpersonal relationship between the two. The writers of the New Testament themselves supply the key by speaking not only of Hatheos and Jesus, but also Hapater, the Father, and of Hahuias to Theu, that is, of the Son of God, and of Hatheos Kaipater Kuriu Hemon Jesu Christu, that is, of the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Father in the Trinitarian sense, Jesus is the Lord, 1 Corinthians 8 6. When Hatheos is used, we are to assume that the New Testament writers have Hapater, the Father, in mind, unless the context makes this sense of Hatheos impossible. So, yeah, he's absolutely right. New Testament distinguishes constantly between God and Jesus. When it says God, it almost always means the Father. He's absolutely right that it's assuming a hypostatic distinction between the two. But I don't mean hypostatic in the late 4th century sense, like a division within the Godhead. Hypostatic in the sense of two different beings. That's the earlier sense that people in the 2nd and 3rd century talked about, a hypostatic distinction. And yes, interpersonal relationship. Jesus is someone. God is someone else. You want to know who this God is? It's the Father. Except for a very small handful of passages where Jesus may be referred to as Theos or Hatheos, and that's what the whole rest of his book is about, just how many of those passages are there. So this is just denialism by Steve Hayes. I've seen this before from Reformed apologists. The New Testament just doesn't use language like they think it should. Well, you know, you got your theory versus the facts here. Let me hasten to add, this point about the usage of God, it's strictly consistent with being a Trinitarian. You can be a Trinitarian and think that for some strange reason, when the New Testament says God, it almost always means the Father, and for some strange reason, never refers to the three of them all together as the one God. That's consistent with Trinitarianism, that use of language, but it's also surprising, giving Trinitarianism, and it's unsurprising if the New Testament writers have a Unitarian assumption. Hayes continues, by the way, it's nonsensical for Unitarians to refer to God as the Father. The paternal designation implies a filial designation and vice versa. These are symmetrical correlative designations. Yeah, this is, I guess, recycling an old bad argument. I think from Athanasius and from other people, I think even from Origen pulls this out once in a while. But yeah, it's just not at all nonsensical to refer to God as Father. It doesn't imply that God is essentially, by his essence, related to anybody else. You can say things like, what if my father had never had any children? And that's not nonsensical. But of course, if he hadn't ever had any children, your father wouldn't be anybody's father. Sure, but by virtue of our relation to God, whereby he is our father, our father in heaven, we can just refer to him through that. It doesn't imply that he's essentially a father, or they couldn't not be a father. If you think God freely created, he didn't have to be father over any creatures. So yeah, not really an answer. 
He wants there to be an answer in the tradition, but he can't find it. When the Trinity's podcast returns, another attempt on YouTube to sort all of this out. So in this segment, I'm going to go to that great repository of theological wisdom known as YouTube. There's a channel there. It's called Ego Pistuo, which means I believe. I don't know what this guy's name is. It's not on the channel, but I'll have a link to this on the blog post for this episode. Let's hear how he tries to sort this out. Hello, everyone, and harasimin ke'erene. Chesed lechem shalom. Grace to you and peace. In this video, we're going to take a look at the question, can God die? Many of those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ do so via the following syllogism. A, God cannot die. B, Jesus Christ died. C, therefore, Jesus Christ cannot be God. Let's just stop there. So this looks like it's a valid argument. That is, if the first two premises were true, then the conclusion would have to be true. So if God can't die, but Jesus did die, it follows that they're two different individuals we're talking about. Jesus is not God and God is not Jesus. So the only way to answer this type of argument is to either show that it's not valid, so that the premises could be true and the conclusion is false, or you grant that it is valid, but has at least one false premise. You'd have to deny that God can't die, or you'd have to deny that Jesus Christ died. Okay, so which is he going to do? Is he going to say it's not really a valid argument, even though it sure looks like one? Or is he going to say it's valid, but it's unsound because it has a false premise? He continues. This syllogism is based on the assumption that Jesus Christ cannot be both God and die. Based on the assumption. Okay, but... How is that relevant either to the validity of the argument or to the truth of the premises? If the person giving the argument is just naughtily assuming something, well, that's interesting, but how does that relate to this argument? Let's see what he says. However, using deductive reasoning from the scripture, we find this syllogism to be false. Okay, so... He's going to parade his logical knowledge here by talking about syllogisms, but then he calls the argument false. If you've had a class in logic, you know that that's strictly speaking nonsense. An argument can't be false. An individual claim can be true or false. A set of claims we can ask, are they all true or are some of them true and some of them false or are they all false? It literally makes no sense to say that an argument is true or false. Okay, but I guess he just is trying to say it's a bad argument. Okay, but if it's bad, it's either going to have a false premise or two false premises, or it's going to be invalid. So again, what's he going to do? Revelation 1.8a, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. B, Revelation 22.13a, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. 
C, Revelation 2, 8b. The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. And D, Romans 4, 9 a For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Therefore, we find the following via deductive reasoning. A, the Alpha and the Omega is the Lord God. B, the Alpha and the Omega is the first and last. C, the first and last was dead and has come to life. And D, Jesus Christ was dead and has come to life. And E, therefore, Jesus Christ is the Lord God who was dead and has come to life. So what is he trying to do there? That wasn't a valid argument that he presented. The problem with his reasoning there is there's an unstated assumption that only one being can be properly called the Alpha and the Omega. And so with that assumption, if God is called the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and also Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, that just must be because they're one and the same being. But of course, titles like Alpha and Omega, like the title Lord, or even like the term God, can be ambiguous. They can be used to refer to different ones. How is this going to help him with the argument that God can't die, Jesus died, therefore Jesus cannot be God? I think he's just saying, but Jesus died and is God. The scriptures say that Jesus died and is God, so ha ha. Well, to just deny the conclusion of a valid argument is kind of missing the point. If you just say, well, oh yeah, well, Jesus is God, so there. Okay, then it has to be false, either that God cannot die or that Jesus Christ died. I think he's surely going to really be denying one, but it's none too clear in what he said so far. So let's hear him out. So how does this work? How can Jesus Christ be God and have died? This is explained in the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which states Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity and one person forever. As true humanity, Jesus Christ could die, but as undiminished deity, it was impossible for him to be held in the power of death, which is directly stated in Acts 2, verses 23 through 24, which read, This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. <laughs> okay, that doesn't really serve his point. God raised him. How does that show that an essentially immortal being can die? This is why Jesus was raised to life immediately after his death, with only a three-day period between his death and his resurrection. No, it, it doesn't say that. It, it doesn't say that he had to be raised immediately because he was divine or because of the hypostatic union. Uh, that's, that's just poor reasoning. It didn't say that or imply it. The three-day period being necessary to prove that he really was dead. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the Lord God 
who was dead and has come to life. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Well, not too good, my friend. Not too good there. I think the answer boils down to this. You're saying that God can die if God is in hypostatic union with a complete human nature. But, of course, in my presentation, I gave an argument that the New Testament implies that God is essentially immortal. Now, if you're essentially immortal, it doesn't matter how you relate to anything else at all. You just can't die. To be essentially a certain way means you can't not be that way and exist. So, yeah, no answer. How can God die? Well, hypostatic union? That's pretty much what his answer was. But the problem, again, is, as I argued before, that it looks like both perfect being theology and the New Testament imply that God is essentially immortal. And it's a contradiction that an essentially immortal being dies, even if it's only for three days. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some more Facebook interactions. couple of uh, friendly but slightly heated discussions on Facebook with a couple of good guys uh, who are Facebook friends. One is Paul Manata. I believe he's a graduate student and he's a reformed guy. Uh, I've enjoyed interacting with him in the past. And then there was another guy named uh, Cesar Bernstein. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name. Uh, I believe he is or was a PhD student in philosophy, although he's decided not to be a professor, which I think he will probably not regret. So congratulations on that. Uh, I'm not going to go through all these interactions, but the general gist of them was, hey, what's the problem, man? How, how could you even think there's a problem here? I mean, death is just, there's this animal that you're associated with and it dies and that's all it is for a human to die. Now, I think this is kind of redefining the common sense concept of death. You could call this an extreme dualist view I'm probably forgetting some of the details here and not being entirely fair. I apologize. But the gist of it was they think the soul is immortal and the soul, which is what you really are, never does lose its life. But when you're embodied, there's this animal, which is alive, which is closely related to you. And that animal is actually what dies. Of course, the life of your soul just continues, whereas the life of the animal, this is understood biologically, I guess. Uh, I'm not clear. Does this animal also have mental states? Are there two thinkers right here where I am? Uh, but anyway, they, they wanted to say that for a human to die in any case is just for the animal it's associated with to die. Okay, so then the eternal logos combines in a mysterious manner with an animal. Not a human person, but a human animal. And the animal dies. And just like any other case of death, what's the problem? Well... Again, I'm a dualist, although I don't believe, I think, in, in a separate animal that's right here with me. 
I don't want to even grant that the body is a thing. I just think of it as a, a bunch of events. But maybe I'm wrong about that. In any case, what dies, we think, is the human person. And what happens in death is the human person loses their natural life processes, all or most of those. And it is part of the natural life processes of a human. Even if you think a human is essentially a soul, it's natural to that being's life that it's able to walk, talk, think with a brain, and do things like that. So it is a real loss. And uh, even if the soul continues to exist and is able to do soulish stuff on its own, maybe it can think without a brain and move around without arms and legs and things like that. I'm granting all that. Of course, some people would challenge it, but let me grant it. Still, they've lost the natural functions, or at least uh, most of them. That's what it is to die. Now, if we're talking about a divine being, what's natural and normal to them is defined with reference to divinity, to, to divine nature, to what it is to be a god. Now, if a god takes on a body or a human animal and it dies, that's no skin off his nose. None of his, the deity's, normal life functions have been touched. It was just puppeting through this other thing, whether it's an animal or a body, or even a complete body and soul. So I just don't see why that counts as death, because there's no loss of normal functions. See, so yeah, I think if you come up with your own funny definition of death, you try to spin all humans as immortal, so we, none of us can die, uh, except in the sense that this associated thing with us perishes. Like, I, I just don't think that's right. It's not an answer that most Christians are going to be able to accept either. Anyway, if I've been unfair, guys, maybe you could uh, post a comment with a link to a blog post or something like that on this podcast episode, and maybe I'll, I'll argue further. I wanted to save enough time, though, to interact with a gentleman named Dr. Daniel Vecchio. Occasionally, I go back and forth with him on Facebook, and he's a good guy. He's a highly educated guy. He's a real thinker, and he's a Christian who argues like a Christian, like, unfortunately, not all of these apologists do. He teaches at Victor Valley College, and he's a 2016 PhD, wrote his dissertation on Aristotelian essentialism, very interesting and difficult historical topic. Obviously, he has some good taste in philosophy if he's interested in Aristotle. We went back and forth on Facebook, and uh, I think I missed some of his posts because you know they get buried in different threads. But he was kind enough to make a blog post on April 19th called Tuggy's Trilemma. Let's see if he has an answer. I remember when I argued with him on Facebook, I thought he probably did have an answer, a principled answer that actually uh, makes some sense, although I'm guessing it's going to be an answer that I think is too costly. Again, I've got the link for his blog post on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. His blog, by the way, is called Vexing Questions, a blog about metaphysics, logic, and the philosophy of religion. He starts off by mentioning my three propositions and fairly summarizing my position. What's his position? Okay, is he going to deny one? He says, I accept that Jesus Christ died. This is affirmed throughout Scripture. Amen to that, my friend. He also adds, The death of Christ is a mystery of the Catholic faith, repeated at every Mass, both in the liturgy and in the Nicene Creed. Yep, so I'm inclined to accept one. 
He says the question might be raised if on the two natures view, so he's going to assume what Tim Paul calls conciliar Christology, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole bunch of theorizing that goes back to the seven ecumenical councils. Okay. It says the question might be raised then if on the two natures view, an individual hypostasis is dead if the life functions of one of his natures are still fully operational, even if the life functions of the other nature become severely restricted. Seems to me that when Orthodox Christians claim that Jesus died, they mean that the human substance that he assumed at the Incarnation was destroyed by the separation of Christ's human soul from his human body, but that he also has a divine nature in which he is consubstantial with the Father and Holy Spirit. That divine substance is essentially immortal. So would Tuggy say that I deny Proposition 1? I don't know, but I think there's a literal sense in which Jesus died. Dr. Vecchio, uh, I think it might matter here how we interpret conciliar Christology. And uh, this is an issue I have with Paul's writing on this. Sometimes they use the word Christ to mean somehow the combination of the two natures, or Christ is the person which has the natures. On the other hand, I find, particularly in the older parts of the tradition, a little bit before Chalcedon, their view is really that Christ is personally identical to the Logos. So the Logos is the same self that's always existed. It's the same being that's always existed. And then it combines with this complete human nature and somehow prevents that complete human nature from being an additional self. If that's what we say, then the Logos could exist without the human nature, uh, but probably not vice versa. Although there's some arguments about this, but it gets really metaphysical. It's really the divine nature that's really essential to this one person there. And then when the body dies or the human nature dies, then that just doesn't touch any of the normal life functions of the divine person, of the Logos. So if that's what you say, that the one person in the incarnate Christ is the Logos, then by my definition of death, that doesn't die at all. Now, it's, it's got this mysterious union, your theory is, with this other thing, and you want to say this other thing was annihilated? I'm not sure if you want to really say annihilated um, rather than just died. Isn't the Catholic view that the soul of Christ continued to exist on, even though the body died, so the soul still exists? So isn't the soul the essential part of the person? If so, you wouldn't want to say that the human nature was annihilated. Uh, but of course, if you say it died, what kind of death? A human death. I think that implies that it's a human being, that it's a human person. But the tradition wants to say that this human nature was man, but not a man. I don't see how you can say that if you really think it died. So if you say that the Logos just is Christ, if that's the person, the Logos, then I think your view is that the Logos did not die. Now, if you say that Christ is somehow the combination of Logos and human nature, it's the thing that has the two natures, did this die? Uh, if it's one thing with two natures, uh, it would have two different natural, two, two different sets of natural life functions. And then presumably the crucifixion was enough to make all or most of the human ones go away, but 
then the divine life functions are just untouched. So does that count as death or not? Maybe you could argue it's a borderline case, given the ordinary concept of death, but I guess I'm inclined to think that it wouldn't count as death, because, again, the life that's essential to this one Christ is only the divine elements of life, right? It's only the divine life functions, because it existed for quite a long time with only those, and uh, presumably it could have decided to never become incarnate. At most, you're going to say it lost half of its life functions, but I don't think that's right. I think there's going to be more to divine life than to human life. So he's lost something. He's lost some abilities that he gained in becoming incarnate, but I don't think it counts as death because, again, all of his, the one Christ's uh, really essential life functions are just untouched by all of this. I gave the example in the initial presentation of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. Seemingly, God cursed him and made him go nuts, and he's walking around on all fours, eating grass and acting like a, an animal of the field, and um, then eventually gets better. He gets healed, apparently. Did he lose his life when that happened? You could say, well, he had this cow-like life, and now he doesn't do it anymore. He doesn't eat grass anymore and walk around on all fours and... Did he moo? I don't know. Suppose he mooed. That would make it a better story. So my point is because his life is defined relative to his essential nature, that's why nobody thinks that he died when he, so to speak, lost his cow life. I mean, really, he was just gaining back part of his natural human life. This cow life was a temporary restriction. Similarly, with the classical Catholic view of Jesus, um, he took on uh, some extra life functions, but then, look, he didn't need those to be alive before. He doesn't need them to be alive now. So, yeah, I guess, I guess I don't think this counts as death. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Vecchio's take on claims two and three in my inconsistent triad. So uh, proposition two is Jesus fully divine. He goes through some uh, philosophizing about this. You know, he says, basically, uh, I don't want to say he's fully divine if you mean that divinity is all he is. That's all there is to him, because, of course, I think that he's also human. Right. I just mean that he has to have all of the attributes that are required for being divine in the sense that the one God is divine. And Dr. Vecchio says... I think Christ is of the very same substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit, and so according to that divine nature, shares in the divine essence and lacks nothing essential to the true God. In this sense, Jesus is fully divine. That is, he is a hypostasis that has a divine nature identical to the divine usia. Would Tuggy agree with me that I can affirm Proposition 2 in some sense? I'm not sure. Well, okay, let's distinguish the man Jesus from the whole Christ and from the Logos. So if Jesus there means the Logos, of course, it's part of your position that the Logos is fully divine. Right. If it's the Christ, 
then because Christ has a divine nature, he's fully divine. But now in this argument, I'm using Jesus unequivocally for the man. Let me just ask you, do you have a man in your Christology or do you only have a human nature that's not a man? So when I said Jesus died, I mean Jesus, the man Jesus died. Uh, was Jesus fully divine? Is it your view that Jesus, the man, is fully divine? The traditional view is that if Jesus refers to the human nature, then by the communication of idioms, we're going to call this being fully divine because of the union with the divine nature. But I'm not really asking, you know, can we call Jesus fully divine, but is he fully divine? Again, some understand the communications doctrine as involving sort of property sharing, so that really the ultimate bearer of properties is the Logos. Yeah, so again, definitely your view is that Jesus was divine if Jesus means the whole Christ with the two natures, or if it means the Logos, if that's really the one person there. And I do think being fully divine requires being a person. If we're talking about the man Jesus, I think that you're committed to denying it because you deny that it's a person or a self, uh, and also because uh, in itself it's just human by hypothesis. You're starting to see the picture here, uh, everybody else, that if you really follow out fully developed small c and big c Catholic thinking about all this, it gets really convoluted really fast. Proposition three, can a fully divine being die? After making some philosophical distinctions, he says, I would say that essential immortality belongs to the divine substance, usia. Divine persons or divine hypostases are essentially immortal only in reference to their substantial nature. It makes no sense to say that a divine person is essentially immortal because of the essential nature of being a hypostasis. He continues, can the divine usia die? No, it is essentially immortal. Can a divine hypostasis die when referencing their divine nature? No. Can a divine hypostasis assume a mortal nature and die with respect to that nature? Yes, and Thomas Aquinas agrees that each of the divine hypostases could have assumed a mortal nature. He gives a link to that in Thomas Aquinas. The divine usia. So, I'm not sure if you're thinking of the divine usia as a universal property well, that's just not the kind of thing that could die at all. Or if you mean the divine usia to be the one God, so not a property, but a bearer of properties. I agree with you that the one God is essentially immortal. And I notice that you're not contesting my scriptural argument for that or my perfect being theology argument for that. Now about this idea of dying with reference to their divine nature versus dying with reference to uh, the human nature. I don't mean to be a smarty pants here and peter out, but uh, I don't know what it means to die with reference to a nature. I know what it is to die. I've said what I think the common sense concept of that is. When I die, I don't believe that I'll die with reference to a nature. I just think that I will lose my normal life functions as a human being, either most or all of them. Dr. Vecchio, I think you have to say more here to explain how this distinction is supposed to work. You're saying that there is a distinction. There's human nature dying and there's divine nature dying. Are these two kinds of dying? Or is it one kind of dying with two different subjects? 
Well, let's hear how he finishes. Dr. Vecchio concludes, So there is a sense in which I affirm all three propositions. I really affirm that Jesus died a human death, which is the separation of the human soul from the human body, in which most of the living functions of the human substance ceased. I really affirm that Jesus is a fully divine hypostasis, insofar as he has a nature that lacks none of the essential divine attributes. I really affirm that the divine usia is essentially immortal. I think these are ways to affirm what Orthodox Christians mean when they say such things, though they may not be what Tuggy means. So he might say that I reject all three propositions, even if I think I affirm them after making the distinctions I have made. But then we would just be quibbling, and I could grant that I reject one or more of the propositions as Tuggy defines them and still safely be in orthodoxy. Nonetheless, I see no contradiction in accepting the three propositions, given my qualifications. So, Dr. Vecchio, I think I see what you're getting at. I think you need to say a little bit more, though, to have a complete answer. I think you need to actually give the three as you understand them, and then have it be clear that they're self-consistent as a set. I think what you're saying is that if Jesus means Christ, like the two-nature Christ of Chalcedon, then you want to say that Jesus died just because one of the natures died, or he died relative to his nature. I'm not sure that's intelligible, but let me keep going. So you want to say Christ did die relative to his human nature. And the second, Christ, the whole Christ, was fully divine relative to his divine nature. And so then, three, you want to say, no fully divine being can die relative to his divine nature. I think those are consistent, understood in that way. I guess my main question for you would be, exactly what was it that died? Did something there lose its natural life or not? Or was it just something kind of similar to that? If you say something in the vicinity actually lost its natural life functions, it's going to have to be the human nature. Okay, but if this is a human death, it looks like that thing has to be a human person. But now we've got an additional person in the incarnation, along with the Logos, and maybe also along with the whole Christ. Now, I know the tradition is to give a special definition to hypostasis, Maybe if you want to bring in the suppositum idea. But laying aside tricky definitions, I think you don't want to say, as a Roman Catholic, that there really are two selves there, a human self and a divine self. It just doesn't fit the New Testament. So that's what I have to say to that. Again, Dr. Vecchio, I wish you the best, and I thank you for the respectful and hard-hitting dialogue. I do think that's as many uh, podcasts as I'll devote to this topic for now. I have some other things in the works that I do want to get onto. Uh, maybe we'll revisit this again. So if anybody wants to reply, you're welcome to do that. Uh, I might sit on it for a month or two while I do some other podcasts. But if you give me a substantial reply, say in a blog post, you know, not just hidden away on Facebook, then hopefully I will save those up and maybe return to this someday because. I think it's a fascinating argument, and I think that any Christian who wants to be faithful to the Bible needs to have something to say to this inconsistent triad. I think many don't. I think a few who have very developed theology, like Dr. Vecchio, do, 
And some Protestants come close to this, I think. At least they're gesturing in the traditional directions for a solution, even if they don't quite state the solution. Okay, but then I want to compare solutions, because I think my solution is really pretty straightforward and pretty devoid of speculation. And I think that's a good thing if Christians are really going to base their theology on Scripture. This week's thinking music has been It Was Only Yesterday by Arnie Bang Husabi. Before I go, I'd like to thank Aaron in Florida for his monthly donation through PayPal. I really appreciate it, Aaron, and I also really appreciated your encouraging email. So glad that our work here has been helpful to you, and I hope it is in the future. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, don't forget to share on social media. And if you'd like to chip in through PayPal, just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post at trinities.org. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.